Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for all things human factors, psychology, and design. Hey, it's episode 179. Today is September 3rd. I Time's weird. 2020. And uh, this is Human Factors Cast. I'm your host, Nick Rome. I'm joined today by my good friend and yours, Mr. Blake Arnsdorf. Hello, Nick. How are you this evening? Hey, I'm good. Blake, I have a little gripe here. I don't know if that's like a, um, a mug that you have in the bottom left corner of your screen, but it looks like there's something hanging above me, and I keep like doing a second glance. Oh, do you now? Right, that's right where my... They, thank you. Thank you. All right. Ugh. Video, you folks. <laughs> we don't do video anymore, but maybe we will. I don't know. We might go back to video. Uh, anyway, we got some excellent news stories this week, and uh, we're we're taking a look into Reddit again, like always. Uh, but this week we're going to be talking about Elon Musk's Neuralink tech, uh, and uh, this is some interesting stuff that I'm sure has plenty of implications for the third richest man in the world. Um, but first, I want to get into some programming notes here. Congratulations, Chris Reed. Uh, he is, was announced today as uh, the new president-elect uh, for HFES. If you are interested in his platform, what he's going to bring to HFES as an organization, go check out his interview. We do have... Uh, an interview with Chris Reed where he talks about his plan for the future of HFES, and it's definitely worth a listen. Uh, I'm I'm pretty happy with the choice. Um, Blake, you're happy with the choice? Absolutely. I mean, I think it would would have been great no matter what candidate got yeah. elected because in this case, we actually got to get an intermit or an <laughs> intimate knowledge of like their their background, the platform they were basically running on. Uh, but definitely, congratulations to Chris. Yeah, you're right. They, both both candidates were really. Uh, Really compelling, and and uh, but either way, I'm I'm happy for Chris, and and uh, we'll see what the future holds there. Um, all right, uh, moving on, Blake. What's going on in your world? Man, it's a it's a wild week for tech for sure. I swear. Um, but th- this was something I actually threw in our Slack. If you're not a Human Factors uh, Cast Slack member, please feel free to join because you can get random tidbits like this. But this is something I wanted to bring up because it's uh, it's interesting in the times that we live in with the pandemic and the the lack of kind of human interaction that we see ourselves doing and actually walmart is dropping a new service um that's supposedly like similar to amazon prime but it's called walmart plus um, i'm not gonna go into the details of what they offer because i'm not here to be, do a sales pitch for walmart unless they want to sponsor the podcast <laughs> But <laughs> even then, I don't know if we take them. But. Yeah, you know. What? <laughs> but basically, what they were doing is they have added in contactless payment for when you walk in a store and you basically scan something with your smartphone, and then you do zero interaction with any kind of checkout lanes, like not even the self checkout stuff. No, no in person interaction. Basically, scan an item with your phone and walk out of a store. And this is something we saw. I don't. I want to say almost a year ago. It could be longer. Uh, when Amazon was actually opening up its first kind of convenience type store in Seattle, where it was the same kind of deal. If you walked in and you were an Amazon Prime member, you could basically do contactless payment. Um, but I know that didn't get as widespread as I kind of expected, yeah. but I'm really stoked that Walmart's kind of bringing this in because I, I feel like they have a pretty wide brick and mortar customer base. So this could you know set the tone for a lot of different services or a lot of different companies or potentially a lot of different app developers um, that want to kind of make this easy for people to jump in and do. Uh, so that was more of just like I was kind of really excited about the the prospect of the service. Uh, not so much that it's Walmart, but at the same time, 
uh, just the fact that we're doing a lot more contactless payment stuff. Yeah, I mean, the world kind of demands it now, right? And and I think we even saw this with 7-Eleven, too. A lot of people are trying this. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see because I think there's uh, th- there's got to be some weirdness, right, about, like, employees. I don't know. I, I know Walmart has started doing this where if you leave the store, they'll, like, Costco you and check your receipt on the way out. But uh, there's got to be some kind of th- – like, I, as – as a former retail employee, I would be weird about someone just walking out of the store with an item that I didn't see them pay for. Sure. Um, and there's got to be some like loss prevention technology that's going on there that w- you know we're not aware of. Um, so I'd be very interested in seeing that side of things. Yeah, that's pretty. Yeah, that's a pretty cool concept too, and an awesome design challenge and problem for you know Walmart or any store that implements it. Probably more so for smaller stores, right? Because Walmart. I, I hate to say it, but I feel like they could take the loss uh, depending on what they were, what was being taken. I mean, you're not going to really get out of the store with something huge. Um, but I mean, if you're losing small items, they could probably take the loss and it not be I don't a problem. Know. I could walk out the store with a TV and say I paid for it on the phone. Like, you know. Yeah, but like for a large <laughs> item like that, somebody's going to stop you and check you. Uh, I would, oh, yeah. I can only no, imagine. Sure. Right. Um, but yeah, so that was kind of interesting. The only other thing that I wanted to actually check in with you about, because it, it, oh, it hits my email. Yeah, it hits my email today about like a, something about Google Stadia. Like they're offering some some game they're offering for free to play uh, for the rest of the weekend. Right. And you know, I don't know what it is about the Google Stadia platform. I cannot get excited about even getting on and playing anything on there. I, I don't know if like I'm too hooked on the console or if it's just like so much easier for me or whatever it is. Um, but have you been playing a lot of Google Stadia or do you oh, yeah. use it at all? I've been playing tons. And in fact, it's almost my exclusive platform now. Uh, the only thing that's holding me back from completely, you know, changing platforms to Stadia is the lack of games. And I think that's a common complaint a lot of people have. Yeah. Um, and, and with that comes other problems like lack of community engagement on certain games, right? So it's like it's very hard to find things in, in like Destiny, for example. It's hard to find a fire team to do whatever. Um, and that's fine. It's a calculated risk. I enjoy it because it loads up in seconds. I don't have to do much thinking. I can play at any room in my house without having to hook up my box anywhere. Um, it's very convenient for me as a dad, uh, which I know a lot of people on like the, the Google Stadia subreddit are all about Dadia, um, is what they call it. Because I mean, it is like I could be playing a game and oh, crap my kid fell over or he's crying or something and and now i need to put it down and i just put it down and it's fine and i can pick it up later and i don't have to worry about like booting down a box or anything like that it's just it's just suspended it happens and it's fine um and i don't know i i really enjoy uh just the convenience of it you know i can play it on my phone i can play it anywhere and i recently <laughs> Like, I think I talked with you about this Microsoft Flight Simulator last week. It's a 100 gigabyte download, and it took me hours to download that, where if I buy something in the Stadia store, I'm just playing it instantly. I don't have to wait for downloads. I don't have to wait for anything like that. It's just an instant gratification thing. Um, Like, I I, I come off as a Google Stadia fanboy, but really I'm a fanboy of, of cloud gaming because this the way it renders the games is better than my PlayStation four, right? Like it's, it's better than that. And so, no, I don't find that same level, that same barrier that you do. Um, 
And in fact, it's it's nice because you, you brought up the crew is actually going to be free to play this weekend uh, for Stadia folks. And, and I think, you know, for me, I just opened up my email and all I need to do is hit this start playing and it will literally just open up the game right there. Like it is it's opening up the game on my device right now. I could play this if I hooked up my uh, if I hooked up my controller, I could actually play this right now already in yeah it's I'm pretty already wild. in i don't have to download it i don't have to do anything else it's just loading up right now um yeah so I, I i don't know i'm maybe it's just a matter of um maybe it just hasn't hit you right yet maybe it won't hit you maybe you know, yeah <laughs> i, I think don't know it has a lot to do with the platform or the games on the platform too yes because like that's it there's like right. no if, Call if of the Duty. Next... There's yeah. There's just yeah. not stuff I'm interested in. There's no Apex Legends, right? Um, which which everyone like... thought was coming, and then they didn't, and it was a big bummer for me at least because that's that would be my platform of choice. I'd play everything on that. Um, so I don't know. Maybe we'll see once the games are there. Um, but oh uh, yeah, my goodness, if they did the next like release of you know Call of Duty or like the the next big you know first person or third person whatever battle royale game and it was successful i mean i could see so many people leaving right. their platforms well funny enough the next successful platform battle royale is bomberman 64 whatever it is it's a it's a battle royale where you're basically playing bomberman i've been playing a lot of that lately oh my it's only on stadia that's hilarious <laughs> so um yeah i mean they have their winners they need more games like it but uh uh, but I want to get into what I've been doing because um, I feel both great and terrible about this. So it's God, it's no secret that the world is not a good place to be right now. And it's just uh, there's a lot of people upset on you know everything in, in the United States, at least, is very polarized. Uh, and I don't think it's a secret where I fall on that scale. But um, <laughs> so here's. <laughs> I've been following my grandma, and uh, she's been posting some really xenophobic, racist shit, and it's really been upsetting me, frankly. And, um, you know, so every time I see that, I have taken it upon myself to take something of the opposite spectrum and post it on my wall. And the thing that's most frustrating to me is that on some of her posts... She won't respond. She just doesn't respond. She, like post it, leave it out in the ether, and it just sits and be you know is racist and whatever. And you know other people call her on it, and some people are like, yeah, MAGA, whatever. But then, um, you know, it's 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 a uh, it's it's weird because I'll go and post the same thing. And the first couple times I did this, I got a lot of like really like targeted, I guess, hateful feedback from folks of that I used to call friends on the other side of the aisle, right. That were calling me ignorant and everything. And, and, um, so all this to say what I've done since is I've taken my grandma's approach and it's been very satisfying where I'm just posting shit on Facebook now, just to, just to people who are very polarized on issues. So it's a subset of my friends are very polarized on issues. So now I have just people just arguing back and forth on my posts and I feel awful about being a Facebook troll, but I also love it. Oh, because, my God. Because some people just are so stupid on the platform, and they just their ignorance shows through, and it's like, I don't... I want to educate you, and I want... But, like, there's some people you just can't get through, right? Like, some people are very, very 
open and receptive to listening to what science and facts say. And I think a lot of people that listen to this show are open to science and facts, even if it may be contradictory to the things that they believe, right? Is that true? Is that a true statement, Blake? Do you I think would take a guess that that's pretty much basically basically because we're doing a, a show based that, on a scientific field. On a scientific, yeah, yeah right, right. I, I felt like I was safe there, but so so <laughs> so yeah. Anyway, I've just been uh, you know taking the Facebook troll approach, and I it's both been a point of massive amusement uh, since since that initial like back and forth with people i was like god i'm just getting so upset like arguing with these people who don't understand and so now what i do is i take very low effort things that i just see in my thing you know in my feed and i'm like oh yeah that would piss somebody off and i just post it and it's like (laughs) i don't know i i just really uh things right now are not okay and the fact that people think it's okay is just is beyond me and so i just the 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 bare minimum of getting satisfaction or at least feeling all right is to, <laughs> to post stuff and have people be upset because of it. I don't know. I, uh, I feel awful. I feel like an awful person, but at the same time, man, like enough is enough. Come on. Well, if you're able to admit it, admit feeling awful, that might be good, but it, it sounds like it's kind of a chaotic, I, I don't know. Hearing you talk about it makes me glad that I don't really go on Facebook. <laughs> I am so glad you're not on Facebook. I think, it's a toxic environment and I don't know why I still have it. In fact, I would probably get more enjoyment if I deleted the damn thing from my phone. Um, but yeah, I got it. Remind me after this, I will show you some of the, some of the ignorant stuff that's on. Uh... <laughs> yeah, that's really tough. Right. Cause and it's, it's kind of funny cause there's a lot of job postings from like Twitter and Facebook that I see come across my LinkedIn feed. That's basically like, how do you deal with the toxicity of our platforms? And it's looking for researchers and designers and all sorts of shit. Um, so that, that's kind of crazy that you brought that up because I've just seen so much of that this week. Because you know, all of them like are trying to put in algorithms that are like fact checking fake news and yeah, you know, but trying they don't, to remove right. harmful content. Well, they do, and they're they're but learning, they're not quick about it. Not, well, not yet. No, I mean, but they're they're still flagging more than they were, you know, two months ago. The thi- you know, the, the thing that like bothers me the most is about some of these these interactions is like you'll post a fact check you'll post like five or six different fact checkers that have checked a fact sure and said you know it is false and the person was like yeah but fact checkers have a liberal bias and <laughs> that's amazing i'm i'm just sitting here i'm like reality has a liberal bias what are you talking about like this yeah. is anyway i'm i'm getting so upset about it and 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 uh the fact that i'm just low effort trolling people is is kind of funny but at the same time it's like I don't know. And and frankly, it's only a subset of my friends that I'm exposing it to. So it's, <laughs> I can feel okay in that. Absolutely. There you go. Yeah. Anyway, whatever, I whatever think, brings you joy. I don't know. It, it, it's at the expense of others. So I don't know how I feel about that. I, I, I feel like an awful person and like I've stooped to their level, but at the same time, um, I'm not subjecting everybody to it. So there's that. Yeah. Well, there you go. If it's not like, you know, full blast, then who cares? All right. Well, let me know how terrible of a person I am for Facebook trolling. And if you want some images, uh, let me know and I can post them on Slack. (laughs) If you guys like to be (laughs) Facebook trolls. (laughs) Oh, we got to talk about if you like books. Remind me after that. Oh, yeah. I need that sound bite. (laughs) Gosh. All right. Uh, All right. Well, why don't we go ahead and get into the next part of the show? 
If you like, no, I'm sorry. If this is the part of the show all about Human Factors news. This is where we talk about everything related to the field of Human Factors. This could be anything from medical privacy. We got, you know what? It's like all about medical and some like weird computer stuff going on this week. As long as it relates to the field of hair, Human Factors, Hair Factors, it's fair game for us to talk about. Blake, what do we have up first this week? All right, so up first, we got some news from Elon Musk and his brainchild Neuralink. So for those who do not know, Elon Musk founded Neuralink a few years back and has made some headlines over the past few years around the world based on its efforts to develop a new kind of interface between the human brain and our computing devices. And now the company has provided an actual demo of the technology. So the demo consisted of having a pig named Gertrude investigate an area with her nose looking for food. And while doing so, Musk actually showed a display that played a sound and showed a visual spike whenever Neuralink that was inside of Gertrude's head detected anything in the environment that came in contact with her snout while rooting around for food. And while the device was demonstrating basically only its read-only capabilities of receiving data or signals from the pig's brain and showing them on a digital interface. The plan is actually to provide a read and write capability in the future where the goal being able to address, you know, neurological issues that come across because uh, the col- <laughs> the company's main goal is to make this product generally available to most people because just about everyone throughout their life will experience some kind of neurological problem and their hope is that by being able to understand these incoming signals they'll be able to rewire the brain for things like memory loss anxiety brain damage and even depression so that's that's a lot to promise based off of you know sticking a device in a pig's head and detecting movement but it is a pretty promising display of the technology's concept at first anyway but nick what do you think have you have you seen any of the like footage from this stuff or read any any articles about it I read this article. Um, the the like I, I'm I don't know where to start with this. I think the place I'm going to start is read scares or write scares me. Uh, read does not scare me. Write scares me. Um, actually, read scares me too. I don't know. It's, it's really scary. Um, so I there's the my brain is exploding trying to sort of rack and stack everything that's going on with this, and this is such a human factors problem where you have sort of the ergonomics of it, right? How does this device link into your brain, uh, and is it comfortable for the user? You have this problem of where is your data, uh, what data is it collecting on you? You have the problem of um, what sort of you know, information is it sending to your brain, are you aware of that information? You have where's your data being stored? You have who's doing things with your data? You have the cybersecurity aspect of it. There are so many human factors, things that goes into Elon Musk's Neuralink system that I am paralyzed with where to start. Um, but I think the, the, the fact that we can read uh, sensory input basically at this point is um, really cool, I guess. That's where I'll start. It's very cool that we can take sensory input from human, or, or I guess in this instance, a pig's uh, sensory. And that is interesting in its own right, if not, if only for creating a data set for how we sense and perceive this world. Um, I feel like there's a lot of really interesting, valuable data there that we could certainly pour into 
and dig through to find out, you know, previously unknown things. Blake, what are your initial thoughts on this? Uh, a lot of what you said, right? Um, I think it's a giant. So it's really cool in a lot of ways. Cause, it, but let's back up for just a second about okay, let's like what up. this is versus what where it's gonna where it needs to go next. Because uh, in reality, we've seen this. We've we've already seen this kind of stuff in most of these stories we've done. You know, where people are in the hospital, right. they're you know they're debilitated in some way, and we can read their brain signals, and different things can happen. You know, they can speak, or they can move a lever, or move their arm uh, with like electronic neural signals. So that's already been done. And this this article actually mentions later that the FDA or Neuralink's already been in talks with the FDA this year about getting human trials started next year with paraplegics. Um, which is going to be a whole new thing. So we've we've seen a lot of what they're already doing. So this is kind of like the very small incremental step one um, for a large promise in terms of what the company's goal is. I I agree with you in that there's a lot of human factors issues, and I think ultimately the concept of you know when you check that terms and agreements box, it just got a whole lot more scary uh-huh. because because the the idea here is like Nick has said is it's going to read and write, and not only that, but the the way Musk talks about this stuff in articles at least and some interviews that I've seen, like this is meant to be like an an upgradable piece of biotech that you continually change out from your brain. You you're basically uploading new software all the time, depending on when new versions come out, when new software comes out. So it's, it is a giant ergonomic problem in terms of like, how do we finally create that cyborg feel where you can take these kind of links as they call them in and out without a lot of pain or massive surgery just to have them. Um, But I think it ultimately, I think it's way too early for us to be al- not allowing, but doing something like this. Like, and I, I know it's not nearly anywhere to market yet, but we have such giant problems with cybersecurity that are not solved. Imagine when you're transmitting and writing stuff to somebody's brain and the, the, the impact that could possibly have if somebody hijacks it. So yeah. it, I just think there's so much like infrastructural groundwork that has to be laid. And it is one of these times where I'm, I personally am excited that it's Elon Musk that's behind this because he's been so afraid of AI and so afraid of some of the exponential growth behind technology that I'm hoping that the people he's trying to attract to this company end up with that same vision so they'll try and lay that infrastructural groundwork that'll prevent a lot of you know basically terroristic hacking of your own brain or try and think of clever ways to deal with things like that um it's really exciting for sure i think it's it's kind of nuts to see um and it's like as if 2020 hadn't been insane enough we're getting really close to like real bcis that are not just like not like the clinical sense but stuff that you'll be walking around with and it could become the norm you know in 10 years or 20 years yeah so uh, just to elaborate a little bit so they're they're this is obviously very early in the process and some of the things that they talk about in this presentation are like their growth as a company where they've been right you see pictures of where they were last year versus now and how the technology has changed just in one year um they also show you a lot of uh sort of close-ups of the technology that they use um kind of and and right now we're dealing with i 
think it's like in the thousand, yeah, 1,024 channels per link. Um, if that doesn't sound like a, if that sounds like a lot, it's not. It's, I mean, if you think about all the processing going on in the brain, there, that's a drop in the bucket, right? So I'm not worried about necessarily the reading uh, aspect of the entire brain. It, it's going to be a matter of how much throughput can you get in the long run. Um, you also got to think about where they're going with this. Like you said, Blake, they're they're going to try clinical trials with uh, paraplegics, tetraplegics, and I don't know. They they don't elaborate much on what they're planning to do with those, but I'd imagine that's very similar to stuff that we've already seen. The the difference to me is that this is a company um, behind this rather than like a, a, a set of researchers. Um, this is a company trying to make money off of this thing um, and sell the technology potentially to folks. And, and yeah, it's Elon. It's your boy Elon. But I don't know, man. Like I just I the whole thing kind of got gets me in a in a weird place, and I, I'm trying to focus on just this article and just what was presented here. But every time we talk about Neuralink, I, my my human factor senses always tingle, if you will, and they go off in a million different directions. As you heard when I started talking about this, I literally did not know where to start because the promise of what this could do is so big, and. You think about where SpaceX was a couple years ago, and now we're sending astronauts to the International Space Station, which they had a successful landing, by the way. I don't think we ever followed up on that. They're back. Um, the Yeah, the, so that's interesting to me, right? If you think about the growth of, of the companies that Elon Musk has touched, yeah. It's I, exponential in every one of them. I like, Yeah, I'll be honest. It kind of worries me to see what happens here, right? I, I, you're absolutely right in... in saying that we have so many other problems to solve first before we even start looking at this thing um but i mean the fact that now it, with with a company like this i feel like you you're right it will be exponential and the reason being is because now you don't have a singular funding source you have investors who are interested in this technology you have um you know a company that's actually hiring smart people and they're going to do incredible things with this. Like, don't get me wrong. The technology is is uh, very promising. And I think, you know, the thing to me that's scary is exactly what you enumerated there. It's, it's the cybersecurity concerns and it's the data concerns. And it has nothing to do with the read-write to your brain. It has everything to do with what data and what data are you collecting. Um, so I, to bring it back down to reality here, they're getting sensory input from a pig snout um, while looking for food. So I, yeah, I guess it's a start for sure. Uh, but there's a long way to go. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, I will I, say that it is like it, it can, there is such an exciting promise behind it that I don't think we're either one of us is highlighting, um, and that is the fact that you could potentially be able to combat like we've talked, I feel like we've talked about a lot of these kind of companies in the past couple of months, but like you would be able to potentially combat some of the physical ailments that come from neurological problems like anxiety or depression without, you know, without drugs potentially. And, you know, maybe even without therapies, if you're able to correctly rewrite the brain or undo specific signals. So there's a lot of interesting 
potential for overcoming neurological problems. And then if you if you think about the impact this could have on somebody that's older, right? Like as you you age and your brain is not as active and you develop different brain disorders like such as Alzheimer's and things like that. What if this could start rewriting and giving people a longer span of life um, or a longer time where that their brain can be like fully active because of the way that it works. Um, so th- there's a lot of interesting and cool things that can happen. I just think there's, a, there's some hurdles to be gone over that are way beyond the scope of what the company is even doing now. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's get us getting outside of the realm one thing that I did I did think was very interesting. Um, this is a little off the human factors path, but in the article it mentions that like the entire point of this demo, which speaks pretty much volumes to me, was to attract people to come work at this company. So it seems like to me they need help. Um, so Blake's announcing on the show that now he works for Neuralink, and I am not anywhere near smart enough to go work for Neuralink. I could. Well, I, there's could nothing I could do. <laughs> I wouldn't be able to help. We just talked about six different human factors applications, Blake. There's plenty you could do. Yeah, I don't think I could do anything about any of that stuff. I don't I'll work in cyber or any of that shit. But but nonetheless, I mean, I think that should tell if if people are reading between the lines, that should really indicate that there's a long way to go. And I think Elon Musk and probably more likely the people that directly work at Neuralink now understand that there's a long way to go and they need help to get there, um, to get beyond what we already can do now. Yeah, you're right. The promise is there and the the future is scary, but I think, uh, I, I always like seeing these stories because it triggers me <laughs> Yeah, in the, in the most human factors ease of ways. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> How how much stuff has to go on to what my, my brain explodes and I kind of like those so anyway, um, all right well thank you to our friends over at TechCrunch for our, our news story this week if you want to follow along we do post these links to the original articles in our Slack as we find them so you can join us over there for more discussion we're gonna take a quick break really quick and then we'll be back to see what's going on in the Human Factors community Human Factors Cast strives to bring you the best in Human Factors chatter every week we pack news interviews reviews and overall fun conversations into each and every product that we put our seal of approval on. But we can't do it without you. You see, the Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener supported. All the funds that go into running this show come from the listeners. That's why we're giving back to our supporters on Patreon, now more than ever. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like 24-7 access to our exclusive Human Factors Cast Slack channel, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Cast Infinite, a Patreon-only podcast where the topic is Human Factors Etc. We're always updating our rewards, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you all, and remember, it depends. All right, and we're back. Yes, Patreon. It's a thing. We do a Patreon. We have one. It's it's a Patreon thing. You know, I'm very excited though. Like we always we always talk about it. we always joke about it. But Human Factors Minute is really a uh you know, it's not mentioned in that that advertisement. But man, like Human Factors Minute has been a ton of fun to put together and produce. Um we are coming up on, I guess, what is this? Like 6 months, I feel like. No, it's got to been we started at the beginning of the year, right? Yeah, like I don't even. I think it was a couple, maybe a month or two in, but yeah, yeah. It was oh, it was, it was at the beginning of March, so I guess yeah, this would be six months. <laughs> but I feel <laughs> like it's been. 
Uh, so here's here's the deal. I feel like it's been so much longer because it's been in production for so much longer than that. Yeah, um, that's true. Like we we put a lot of effort into making sure we had fifty episodes or fifty two episodes, a whole year of content ready to go uh, for your consumption. St- you know, right at, at day one, and we've been producing ever since. Um, you know, some weeks are slower. It's kind of catching up to us, but it's okay because we always have more stuff to talk about with Human Factors Minute, and it's great. It's just us sitting there for a minute talking in your ear holes about a human factors topic that you may have forgotten about, that you may not know about, or, um, you know, it, it's just one of those things, you know, an organization, a spotlight, something. It's it's one of those things that uh, is just a good reminder that, that other fields of human factors are out there. Like over the past month, um, I think it, it's been really fun because we talked about what driver behavior, meta-analysis, aging, and HFE woman. Um, that sounds right. So, you know, go, go check it out. Uh, if, if you're interested, I think that's at our human factors engineer level. Um, yeah, it's a fun time. It's a fun time. Uh, we're going to be putting together more of those human factors minutes very soon. Um, Hey, before we continue though, I I do want to bring up a couple extra programming notes that I forgot to mention here. So, um, it's almost that time of year, Blake. Do you know what time of year I'm talking about? I have no idea. Is it HFES time? It is the HFES time of year. Um, so we are almost at that time of year where we do a deep dive into HFES. And uh, so last year was a little weird because uh, we both had stuff going on. My son was born literally that week, so um, I couldn't go. The uh, What we're going to do this year, since it's all virtual, is I think we might stick around, listen to a couple panels, and give our thoughts afterwards. Um we're going to try to have some extra fun stuff for you. If we can snag some interviews, we will. Um, otherwise, it'll be it'll be some good coverage. Uh, so hopefully you'll follow along. We'll be active in our Slack during the whole time uh, stuff is going on. So we'll make a whole Slack channel for HFES 2020 virtual. It'll be a good time. Uh, with that said, though, coming up here in the next couple of weeks, we are going to take a break right before uh, that week. But we will, the week prior, have a fun uh, look ahead to HFES, kind of like we do every year. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to mention that before we move on. All right. Let's get into the next part of the show. It came from. It came from. It came from Reddit. Yes, this is the part of the show where we search all over Reddit to bring you topics the community is talking about. Any subject is fair game as long as it encourages discussion among the human factors community, even if it comes from other subreddits like human computer interaction or ux subreddit it's all fair for us to sit here and talk about okay blake i'm gonna read these but you picked these because you had a a very specific one that you wanted to talk about is that the first one here yeah i thought the first one was kind of interesting from my perspective anyway all right so this one's from the ux subreddit this is by persh dishpund um and this is contribute to os projects they go on to write, how do I contribute to open source projects as a UI UX designer? There are a lot of great open source projects, which are only used by a small group of people. The biggest issue in the adoption of any open source projects is the usability and design. Most of the open source projects are currently led by developers who don't have enough knowledge of UX design. And as a UI UX designer, I think I can add value to a lot of these projects. Thank you for picking this one, Blake. Uh, but I don't always, but I don't have any idea of how open source projects are run and how I can help them. Do you guys have any suggestions on how do I start helping out these projects? How do I select which open source projects I should contribute to? Are there any set processes for UX UI design 
of open source projects. Any projects that you guys are contributing to where I can help and learn about the open source ecosystem. Blake, this is a terrific question. Um, do you have experience doing this? Yes, I do. Talk about it. Yeah. So uh, let's let's be clear. There, this is really hard to do. Um, if you don't, and this is my opinion, and you know what? If you hear this and you disagree with it, or you have comments or you would like to go back and forth with me about it, jump in our human factors cast slack i would love to talk about like if you've had experience doing this like even as as an hf like working on an open source piece of software as a ux designer ui designer whatever uh but this is basically my experience it can be really hard to figure out how to help if you don't know how to code and you don't have specifically things that you can contribute because a lot of a lot of times when you think of open source software there will be like a github repo that you can go and read the documentation for download it and even get it up and running on your own you know your own personal server or on your laptop or something like that and so knowing how to at least read code and being able to get that far and really understand the project is going to take you a long way uh, but I think a big portion of be of like as a UXer or a UI designer, like reaching out about an open source project to a developer, when you think that their their usability is horrible or their design is bad, you have to be really careful about what you're doing. Because I mean, the, the thing is, yeah. the thing is, is like you don't want to burn a bridge before you even build it for sure. So it's it's best to approach these problems with like okay, I would like approaching the developer or the people that are working on it or like making a pull request and you know make doing some readme comment content and trying to do a pushback um, so that the development te team that's working on it will see it. But basically you want to just act like you're trying to learn more about the project, which you would do no matter what project you're working on. You never really step into something brand new and say, I know how to fix all of it because I'm good at design. Like that's not how the game goes. Uh, so in terms of like starting to help out, it would just be getting in contact with the development team, talking to them a little bit about what they're doing and maybe offering up some insight in terms of like, hey, these are the types of things that I do. I'm really interested in working on open source software because this is where I'm passionate. Um, and just saying you're passionate about open source software sounds weird. So I would I would kind of go ahead and decide what types of things would you like to work on that are open source? Are there specific domains that you're interested in, like medical technology or building, you know, diabetes interfaces? Uh, that are out there open source or like what is it you want to do and then go find projects related to that where you could like this is kind of my my pitch also for like a ux researcher or, a, or an hf researcher is like where what can you offer from your background to like like if somebody's developing a piece of software that's like related to something you know a lot about and you want to say like hey you guys should build in these metrics so you could test this thing and you know get series a funding um but really it's it's getting to know the project, asking good questions to the development team, and then also coming in the door trying to bring some value. So like whether that's creating designs and bringing it to them and asking for feedback on your own work based off of what you've seen them seen in their development, or if you really want to have a, a big stake in a project, figure out how to build part of what you want to do. So that you're not leaving the onus on a developer to figure out how to integrate a good user experience or how to de 
de- design a dope UI based off of what you think it should look like. Um, so that's that's a lot of things in one chunk. But Nick, I mean, yeah. what do you what do you think? Is there ever been a time where you've wanted to jump on an open software open source software project? Yes, and I've done so. So okay, um, I'm glad we both have this experience, and I'm glad we both have various levels of experience with this. So, uh, well, really quick, do you want to say what the project is? You don't have to. Oh, I actually can't. Okay, great. Got it. Um, so here, here's here's the thing. Here's what I do. I will say what project this is, and I will say uh, uh, I'll say what project it is. So there's a um, there's a game launcher that combines all the other game launchers. That's open source. It's called Play uh, Play Night. I think that's right. Um, and it basically combines all of your video games on your system into one launcher uh, that does some you know you link it to your account and it automatically pulls in all this data about it so uh that's the project i work on what i've done in the past and what has worked uh funny enough uh and this is not just with open source by the way you can do this for other things too um like (laughs) like companies (laughs) uh that use public facing software um my approach has always been write a user story for them as a user i would like to do this so that I can that. I will know this is complete when this button has been moved from the bottom left to the bottom right, indicating the next steps, right? So you can actually say that, and you can provide them with a potential solution right in your, uh, like, issue ticket, right? And, And that's very helpful for a lot of folks, especially open source developers who, like, they'll get a ticket and be like, oh, that's an easy fix. Yeah, I just moved that over there. You can go an extra mile, like Blake said, and do the code for them. But if you don't know code, another good way to communicate concepts is through screenshots and mockups. And I've done that, too, where I've said, hey, um, as a user, I would like to do this so that I can do that. And I've provided a mockup of what I think this might look like. Um, And I've sent them like an imager link or whatever. So that way they can get to it very easily. Uh, they can see exactly what I'm talking about. Um, and, you know, you provide a contact back information. If it's done through GitHub, they, they, you can, they can leave you a message or whatever. Um, but that's a way to be pretty unobtrusive. Um, and it also says that you're a user of this product that they're putting together. And so if you are coming in to this space and they recognize the language that you're using, a user story, which is used in a lot of software development, you're speaking their language. It's not like it's going to be foreign to them. Um, that helps a lot with sort of uh, greasing those wheels and getting in, right? There's Then that's when I would go and say something further like, hey, uh, I, would, I would like to be in, you know... Y- I've, I've left a couple of these tickets. I'd, I'd like to get more involved. Um, and, and it's a good litmus test for if they want to listen to you, if they think your feedback is valuable, right? You can submit those like user story tickets. And if they, if you see the change and it's like, oh, well they do listen. Okay. Great. Then they're receptive to this type of feedback and say, Hey, look, uh, I've actually submitted a couple of these in the past and, um, would like to know how I could get more involved and, and, uh, potentially help, you know, don't, be careful with the word that you use, right? Like polish, don't use that. But like help jump in and and, uh, help facilitate some of the UI elements. You know, here's my background. Like Blake was saying, I think that's a good chance to jump in. Um, So yeah, I mean, if you want the foot in the door, use the user story approach with the mock-ups. I think that's a really good good way in. Absolutely, yeah. And I so one other 
tidbit for this. So I did a kind of cold email one of these, which was really hard to do, and I didn't. I felt weird about doing it. Um, but I, I'll I'll name the company because it's probably one of my favorite companies that exists. Uh, so for Black Rifle Coffee, I'm a big fan of the organization, the stuff they do, their benefits for veterans, all that stuff, the content they create, whatever. Um, but I noticed so in their checkout flow where they have like the capability to basically you can donate to five or six different charities um, that are related to, you know, vets and psychiatric stuff or vets and all sorts of stuff that if you select one charity, the rest of them disappear. You can't donate to all of them. And I was like, whoa, you guys are missing out on lots of money for other donate other organizations. What the hell are you doing? So like I wrote a probably pretty aggressive email and then I had to humble the shit out of myself so that I didn't come off sounding like a pompous person. And I think that's one really good tactic to take when you're trying to provide feedback to anybody that you don't have, you're not in the company. You don't know the design decisions. You don't know what goes on in the different meetings. Just take a very humble approach. And like Nick said, provide examples, try the user story route. I think that's a really great piece of feedback by the way. Um, but it's, you'll, you never really know what people will do if they see that kind of stuff. Cause actually like I got, I was part of why they got fixed on their website. So it's, yeah, exactly. it's just like small things like that. You never really know where it's going to go. So don't be too worried about the outcome. As long as you're like, you're humble about it. You kind of take people's feelings into consideration and just provide good content to them. Yeah. And, and to follow up on that. Yeah. That's, that's what I was getting at with the company's side of things too, right? You could do this for open source. You could do this for companies. I know a colleague of mine had a problem with an airline uh, website and she submitted a ticket exactly like that. And I don't know if it ever got resolved, but the the point is that you're speaking their language and you're kind of integrating with their system. And it's not that it, it, it is humbling because you're basically saying, Hey, I'm a user of this product. And as a user, I, I want to donate to more than just one um, organization at checkout. Uh, I'll know this is complete when I check a box and the other ones don't disappear, allowing me to check another one, right? It's It could be as simple as that. And they see that and they're like, oh, yeah, no, that's a great idea. Let's do that. So good. This was a great one, Blake. Thank you for picking this one. I'm just glad that it, like, it hit my mailbox right at the right time and I just created it because I swear so many of these slip out of my hands in the middle of the week. Um, that I just I, I lose track of it. So this was a good one. I was stoked to put it in. And thanks to uh, Prush Depin um, for putting this up on the UX subreddit. This is a great question. <laughs> you did not. Uh, I, I, I will have one more follow-up on this. If you have a Blake, if you have a Nick, if you have somebody that you trust that can read over your email that is aggressively written before you hit send, that's a good thing. Uh, have oh, them that's look a it really over. good idea. Yeah. yeah, have them look it over. All right, uh, next one here is posted by Lindy66. Uh, is this the uh, user experience subreddit again? It is. Ooh, two, a twofer this week. Uh, research goals of a stakeholder interview. Uh, junior question here. Hi, I'm trying to uh, figure out what the most important research goals for a stakeholder interview. For now, I've settled on one identifying the problem, and two, identifying constraints. What other research goals uh, do you professionals consider extremely important for a stakeholder interview? Sweet. So quick kudos to uh, to Reddit, because this was actually tagged as a junior question. I didn't realize they started doing that. I thought that was a really cool concept, a really cool feature, because, I don't know, it made me want to sit in there and try and answer some of it. 
um, because I'm a little more senior, not very much, but a little. Okay, what other research goals do you need to have when you're talking to a stakeholder? So this is going to depend, and Nick, I'm stoked on your feedback too, because I know we've had diverse experience with stakeholders. Um, but I think one question you need to ask yourself is how much you know about the product you're going to be working on. Are you a freelancer? Do you work at the company? Are you brand new to it? Um, taking advantage of somebody who's more senior in a company to actually learn about their experience with a product, the journey of it, and their basically their understanding of who their user base is, is really where I like to spend a lot of time because I, I feel like you treat, if you treat these interviews a little more conversationally and inquisitive about their experience and what they've done in terms of the, the product you're working on or the software or whatever, um, that really can be beneficial in how they're framing the problem as well as what constraints they're identifying. Uh, the other thing that I like to get from stakeholders in terms of goals is, you know, who else should I talk to in the company that can re relay this problem to me? Because it's it's one thing when you say stakeholder, like that could be anybody, that could be the C-suite, that could be your PM, whatever it is. Um, so getting the problem from multiple perspectives is one thing I like to do if I'm going to do a stakeholder interview at all. I tend to do at least three of them uh, to try and understand the problem set, constraints, and Mainly, too, especially if you're a freelancer, this is the most one of the most important parts. What what is their expected outcome of whatever you're doing? Because uh, without that, you could just be shooting fish in a barrel, and you could come back in you know a month, six months, and have not <laughs> anything close to what they want or what they were expecting. Um, that's that is different from what they need sometimes, and that's that's why identifying the problem, what their expectations are, the constraints but also understanding the product at a deep level can really help you understand is what the goal or the constraints or the audience that's been identified is that really who you should be targeting or what you should be doing or is there another problem or something else that's emerging um, so those are kind of the things I like to tackle in some of these stakeholder interviews uh, but Nick what do you got man no I think a lot of the same stuff that you were saying I think ultimately um, you have to understand what your role is uh, when you basically interview a stakeholder um so oftentimes not all but oftentimes you will be sort of that communication piece right and and communication is so important in human factors uh in ux whatever you want to call it but the 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 communication piece not only between your users and your developers but also between your users and your stakeholders your stakeholders could have a fundamental misunderstanding of how the users work and they may have an idea in their head that you have to tiptoe around uh, and communicate that actually, no, that's not what the users want. Um, so it's it's a precarious situation you find yourself in sometimes when you have to uh, correct that. Um, and so with that said, yes, a lot of the, a lot of what you said, Blake, is, is true. You want to find out what their goals are, what they think the solution is, and what they know about their users. And I think once you get that understanding of how they think about their users, when you actually go out and do that research on those users uh, and it comes back different, then you'll have to kind of play that translation game. Does their solution actually fit what the user want? Um, and there's, it's just so much, right? Like, yeah, this is a junior question, but it's, it's also one of those things that's just so critical to get right. Um, you don't want to piss anybody off, especially if it's like a C-suite, right? They have the they have the power to just 
you're out. Sorry, because you See didn't ya. like what I said. So it's it is all about that communication. It's like tell them uh, not what they want to hear, but what they need to hear in a way that makes them not hate you. Yeah, that's that's when like I can. This is like the one of the few things that the small amount of stand-up that I've done has really translated. It, understanding your audience is so important. And I feel like when I was working at a startup a couple of years ago, I did not really know how to read an audience at all or who I was talking to. And in the C-suite room, that could be really bad <laughs> for sure. So like understanding the person you're talking to and trying just to do a lot of listening is so important, especially for these kind of situations. Yeah, that's all I got. Um, you have any other closing thoughts on this one, Blake? No, that's it. These were good picks. Thank you, man. Absolutely. All right, well, that's going to be that's gonna be it for today, everyone. Let us know what you guys think of the news stories this week. You can join the discussion on our Slack, like Blake said. And follow us all over social channels at H-Factors Podcast. You can always send us an email, show at humanfactorscast.com. We read each and every single one of those that comes through our inbox. If you like what you hear, you want to support the show, you can do that in a couple of different ways. Uh, you can leave us a review on your podcast medium of choice. Or if you want to send us money, we're happy to take that. We'll give you something back in return if you support us on Patreon. And, of course, you can always reach us at our home on the web, humanfactorscast.com. I want to thank Mr. Blake Arnsdorf for being on the show today. Where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about sticking probes in their brain? If you want to stick a probe in your brain, I'll join you. Come hit me up in in our Human Factors Cast Slack at Blake, or you can talk to me on social media at Don't Panic UX. I had a brain fart right there. You almost could use a Neuralink, I think. I could. Elon, (laughs) help. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning in to Human Factors Cast. Until next time, it depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organizations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense. <laughs>